0: Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.
1: Sometimes these days, I think I have a terrible job working on U.S.-China Relations as I watch the Forty years of work uh, erode, but the um, the great part of the job is I got to spend this weekend reading a book by an old friend, and I always fear, gosh, I'm not going to like the book. But the truth is, I love the book. It is just a wonderful read, and it takes you back. You know, we're roughly it's a few years younger, but we're roughly the same age. But it takes you back into the last 60 years of Chinese history and personalize it in a way that is very gripping. So this became an incredibly enjoyable um, weekend for me, where I just sat and, and read this book. And it's just it's, it's a wonderful read. And if you combine that with the fact that Sean which is not really part of the book, is a legendary investor in China. He was one of the first people to really work in private equity in China, first to really buy a bank in China, first to do a lot of things in China. So you combine this kind of financier's background with this book and it's really an extraordinary story. The good news is the book is for sale out back, and uh, he will stay around for a few minutes to sign them. But let me turn it over to Sean to hear the stories. He currently, by the way, which is I see on this, is chairman and CEO of PAG Group, which is now how many, 16 billion?
2: Mm, we uh, managed $30 billion. $30 billion. See,
1: I'm a year out of date. It went from 16 to 30 in the time that I was here. But it, and it is an incredibly successful Asia-based private equity firm, uh, where his partner is one of my oldest and closest friends. So happy you could make him happy, too. But Sean, thank you so much.
2: Well, thank you very much, Steve, for having me here. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a great pleasure. And I'm deeply honored to be here. Before I came, I had a conversation with uh, Margot, who is standing in the back, landman, who told me that uh, I have to warn you that this is a group who knows what uh, the Cultural Revolution is. I thought that's great. I lived through that experience 50 years ago, 40, 50 years ago. And in the past 50 years, I have been trying very hard to figure out what the Cultural Revolution is and I have never been able to. So now I come to this place to talk with this group of people who actually knows the Cultural Revolution, uh, which I'm sure uh, is uh, a very rare occasion uh, for myself. Um, I thought I will provide you, before we get into a conversation with Steve, who has so kindly provided this opportunity for me, I thought I'll provide you with uh, some visual context of the stories of my book. And I brought a few photographs with me for today's purpose. I graduated from elementary school, when I was 12, when the Cultural Revolution broke out, schools were shut, and uh, teachers were beaten up. And uh, for the next few years, uh, there was no school at all. It was a very chaotic period of time. Not only in Beijing, but for the rest of the country. I don't know how many of you know this gentleman uh, on Mao's right side. (coughs) He was the president of the country. This is the front page of the People's Daily in 1959 on the 10th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China. He was the president and Mao was the party chairman. So he was very prominent in the Chinese society. Seven years later, there he was being attacked verbally, struggled against by Red Guards and rebels. Three years after that, he died in prison, nameless. There was no process, there was no public knowledge what happened to him until after the Cultural Revolution. This was his wife, who was about 47 years old at the time. She was hauled in front of 300,000 college students to be struggled with, and she was humiliated, They put a necklace of ping pong balls on her neck to symbolize that she was going in the direction of capitalism. She was put into a prison for 12 years in solitary confinement. Unfortunately, she survived the Cultural Revolution. I don't think anybody knows who this man was standing next to Mao. He was the first defense minister of China, Peng Huai. He was the commander-in-chief of the Chinese forces in the Korean War, and his forces fought the Americans to a standstill, as you remember. And he <coughs> was thrown into prison during the Cultural Revolution. His crime, he criticized Mao in 1958 for the great leap forward policies which eventually led to the great famine during which about 20 to 36 million people died representing either 3 or 5% of the chinese population i cannot give you a precise number because there's no precise account of the number but the most conservative estimate by the party was about 20 million people died of starvation during that period of time. And uh, for those of you who read Chinese, you will know who this is. He was the father of Xi Jinping and he was considered the an anti-party element and he was paraded and humiliated and he was imprisoned starting from 1963, right? As you mentioned. And he fortunately survived the Cultural Revolution. He was the vice premier of the country, and yet this is what he went through during that period of time. So the entire country was in chaos. As I described in my book, I witnessed teachers being beaten to death by their students. And Mao started the revolution and he reviewed the records in Tiananmen Square eight times in 1966. Millions of records went through that process, and there was Mao, and he drove all these young people into frenzy. And uh, he thought that was not enough. The revolution needed to be spread to the rest of the country. So, in 1966, towards August or September, another movement started, which roughly translated into English is called Great Networking. So all the red guards fanned out throughout the country to spread the fire of revolution. And I joined a group of teenagers to travel around the country in the name of revolution. I was 12 years old. And I'm the second one from the right. (coughs) There's very good evidence that I once was a teenager. Well, actually, (laughs) before I was a teenager. (laughs) But very quickly, things got out of control. Different factions of the Red Guards, different factions of rebels thought they were more revolutionary than the other faction, So they started to fight with each other and China descended into really a civil war with armed conflicts. And uh, this is the artist rendition of what happened in 67 and 68, 1967, 1968. I thought this artist rendition probably best represents what happened during that period of time because I couldn't find photographs of all the killings, all the bloodshed and uh, many people died during that period of time. And the records, of course, many of them died as well as they were fighting with each other and by then the entire country was in turmoil and Mao came up with a very brilliant idea and he called upon young people to go to the countryside to remote parts of China, to most barren parts of China, to reform their world outlook, to learn from the peasants, to help transform the backward countryside of China into, I suppose, a socialist paradise. And I was 15 years old, after three years of having nothing to do, in the city, roaming around in the city, many young people looking for trouble, getting into fights, And in 1969, I was sent to the Gobi Desert along with my peers, many of my friends. If you look at the map of China, map of China, it it looks like a rooster. And Beijing is located where the throat of the rooster is. And the Gobi Desert is on the back of the rooster, you know, that yellow part which says Gobi Desert. And you see that red dotted line kind of trading the bottom of Gobi Desert starting from Beijing. That's the Great Wall of China. So the Gobi Desert is to the north of the Great Wall to a place where you know, it's extremely barren. And this is a picture that I took Last time I went back there in 2005, the terrain today is the same as it was at that time. And what were we supposed to do? Uh, We were supposed to grow crops in this land and change this into arable, fertile land. And you can imagine we worked extremely hard, 16, 18 hours a day in the fields, And you can imagine how successful we were turning this into agricultural land. There I was when I first got there. And there was me again, chasing a bull. I actually discovered, in fact, if you chase a bull, the bull runs away from you. (laughs) You I, I look at all this bull fight, and the bull chases you, that's because you <laughs> run away. Uh, if you charge the bull, he runs away. Don't try it, but at least that was <laughs> my experience. We didn't have any housing when we first got there. So this is what we built from mud, from reeds. And um, the hardest thing at the time was in winter time the temperature inside and out was the same. There was no heating and in the Gobi, the temperature, very often in winter time, was about 10. Today I just received a message from some organizers in Chicago. I'm supposed to be there for an event on Wednesday. They said, Oh, the event has to be postponed because Chicago will be shut down Wednesday due to the extreme cold. So how (laughs) cold it's going to be? They said, well, minus 10. I thought, you still have heating. (laughs) We didn't, we didn't have any heating at all. Uh, In any case, in that kind of temperature, when you go out to use the bathroom, (laughs) in the snow blizzard, it was dangerous. Uh, of course, there was no bathroom to speak of <laughs> to answer the call of nature was a life-threatening experience. The only source of fuel, mm-hmm. there were no fuel, the only source of fuel was cow dung. You saw me chasing that bull or, or cow manure. When dried, you can burn it you know, for five, seven minutes. Doesn't smell too bad, so we would collect in the fields, cow down, dried cow down, and bring them back at night before bed. We didn't really have much of a bed. We would burn that thing for 10, 15 minutes to give us a little warmth so that we could take off our clothes and get under cover. And that was the only source of heating to this day. I like to see a fireplace because It reminds me of the warm feeling sitting around calm manure burning. When I first came to this country, in fact, I noticed that when people don't agree with each other, they tend to use a very polite expression, (laughs) bullshit. (laughs) And I thought to myself, that thing used to be so dear to me. In winter time we would be dispatched to a frozen lake a very long distance away and to cut bridge. and that's me cutting ribs on the lake and that's the hard labor, extremely hard labor. And um, of course there was never enough to keep ourselves warm. We had to work many hours a day, the temperature typically was below zero Fahrenheit. My friend, me up the ridge, and there was no water. And that was the experience in the Gobi. It was very difficult to find water in summer or in winter, even when you work on the lake, because the ice was so deep, it was impossible to reach into under the ice to get water. So we just have to cut some ice and suck on the ice to quench our thirst. And I have to tell you that if you try to quench your thirst with ice, it's almost impossible to do. After two minutes, your mouth will be completely numb from the coldness. Uh, But that's what we had to do. Now, when I was there, I befriended an older gentleman who was the foremost aviation expert in China. He was an airline captain. He used to fly military planes such as bombers. He was trained in the United States during the war when China and America were allies with each other. He was serving in the nationalist military. So he was very familiar with the United States in the 1940s and he was the one who told me a lot about the United States and that was the first exposure that I had to this country. So I learned something about this country all from him and his name is Yi Kong. Just a couple of weeks ago, I asked my secretary to put the slides together including this photograph. My secretary looked at this photograph and said, which one is you? I suppose I have come to that age as well. (laughs) I left the Gobi after spending six years doing hard labor over there. The hardest thing for us was starvation. We never had enough to eat. So the next meal was always a worry. And the second worst thing was We were deprived of education or schooling. For 10 years, there was no schooling. School was shut in 1966, and for the next 10 years, throughout the country, there was almost no schooling at all. So people of my generation are referred to as the lost generation for a good reason, because we were denied education for 10 years. And most people didn't have a chance to study at all. Most people simply gave up. It was after 16 hours of hard labor, you just don't want to study anymore. And I was fortunate that I didn't. I kept reading whatever I could lay my hands on. And I consider studying to be a great privilege, especially when I came to this country to see that uh, you know, kids are able to go to school. And uh, But a lot of things I learned from this gentleman and it was uh, after six years of spending time in the Gobi, I was able to get out. It was the end of the Cultural Revolution and the whole ordeal eventually came to an end. When I left the Gobi, of course, I didn't have any education and uh, missed middle school or high school altogether and went back to Beijing. And five years later, I came to the United States. And uh, this is, you recognize this lady? Diane Feinstein. Diane Feinstein. She was the mayor of San Francisco when I first arrived in 1980 in the United States. And there I was in a cocktail party chatting with her. Hmm. And uh, a few years later, I um, went to UC Berkeley and got into a PhD program. Jenny Yellen, who very kindly wrote the foreword for the book, and you should buy the book for the foreword, <laughs> not for the rest of the stories. And she said he had arrived at Berkeley to start his PhD program, and I was his academic advisor. I was stunned to discover that he had no formal math training. All the math he knew, he had learned by himself, by candlelight. Well, I told her candlelight because I didn't know how to explain the kind of light illumination that I had. It was a small bottle of kerosene oil with a little wick on it. And in this country, if you tell people it's a kerosene lamp, they think something very fancy, right? <laughs> the, the, the thing that, that's closest to it is a candlelight, but we couldn't afford candle, of course. We could only afford a kerosene oil wick, which provided the illumination for me to read for many, many years. And so I came to this country basically without any formal education at all. Now, what I miss most about that period of time are my friends who came out of there without education, without the skill or knowledge to make it in a new, more open society. And many of my friends have lived in poverty ever since, including today. And that, I think, is a brief introduction of my
1: book. Thank you. Tell us some of the stories from the book. I mean, like the, the you know, we've all heard and studied about barefoot doctors, and you have a very interesting, this uneducated kid suddenly is selected to be a barefoot doctor. Tell us about the selection, and then tell us some of the stories about the treatments that you gave and how you figured out what treatments to give.
2: Steve, I can't say too much, otherwise people are not going to read the book anymore. (laughs) They will read the book. (laughs) But uh, we did uh, many different things, working in the fields, trying to transform the desert into arable land was only part of it, it was a very hard part. We had to dig ditches, canals, move sand, moon clay and it was a back job. We also did, we made bricks. You know, I was a brick maker for a very long time. That's an even harder job. I was a kiln operator, baking bricks in the kiln. And uh, I herd cattle. And, uh, and then I was also uh, a barefoot doctor, a so-called barefoot doctor. I was reading I was one of the very few people to uh, be uh, reading although books were banned and reading was frowned upon and I got into trouble for being caught reading but uh, my reading of some medical books uh, really helped me and one day I was called into the company commander's office we were sent into what was known as Inner Mongolia Construction Army Corps. So we were like a semi pseudo military, and our commanders were military officers in active service from the company commander and above. There's regiment and there's division. And uh, so he called me into his office and he said, uh, We appoint you to be a doctor. Uh, we'll send you to some place for training. And, uh, and you, you will come back to become a doctor. And that's how I became a doctor. I consider myself to be a quack doctor <laughs> because I never received much of a training. But uh, in the countryside where medical care was not just lacking, it was absent, uh, what uh, we did uh, was very helpful.
1: C- can you, uh, I love the story. You, you, you've raised money. You know you have to tell folks about a deal that you've done in order to get them invest in your future deals. So selling books is the same. You have to tell some of the stories to get them to whet their appetite to, to buy the book. The um, talk about the, the, the pig treatment.
2: Oh, well, in my book, I talked about the fact that uh, we had a few pigs, in fact, tended by Yi Kong, Mr. Yi, the aviation expert.
0: The he guy was, who was in the photo.
2: Right, he was exiled into the Gobi for reasons I wouldn't get into, but I discussed uh, in the book. But his job was to raise pigs, and I must say that uh, the pigs over there looked more skinny than dogs in this country because there was not much to eat, but. Uh, Uh, One time, you know, they were sick and uh, So I was called upon to treat them And I thought that treating pigs uh, shouldn't be so dissimilar from uh, treating people Uh, So we applied some folk medicine. We also used some Western medicine Eventually, we were able to bring them back to uh, health So that's what we discussed uh, what I discussed uh, Uh, in the book but uh, we were able to uh, eat meat uh, just about once a year at the end of the year around time around this time of the year in fact very close well at the Chinese New Year time now we're getting very close to Chinese New Year we would slaughter a pig
1: tell us about you know you're going through all of this and you kind of decide that this is, what you're experiencing is not good for China, that if this is being experienced everywhere, this can't be good for China. So you decide to write a letter to the chairman himself. Yes. So tell us how you, how you kind of came up with that, how you wrote it, and how you tried to transmit it.
2: We thought that, uh, you know, I never, at that time, when I was 15, 16 years old, never had any doubt that Chairman Mao was right, and he was doing all the right things. And we saw all these horrible things around us. And I thought, that's because he simply didn't know what was happening. If only he knew, he probably would have done something about it. So we decided to write a letter, the three of us, write a letter to him and to Premier Zhou Enlai and to tell them what we were experiencing. And I summarized our experience as having committed, or this entire experience of Inner Mongolia Construction Army Corps to have committed three crimes. The crimes against the young people because we're not educated, we're wasting our time and our life and uh, it was a crime against the peasants, the rural society, because we were so hungry, we had to steal from the peasants. And, uh, and then the crime against the state, because I thought that uh, you know, this kind of system was not good for China. So we wrote a letter to him, and uh, of course, it was very risky to write to the chairman at that time.
1: When I first- uh, But paper and pen was available.
2: Paper and pen was available, and you were able to send uh, letters. Uh, letters were very slow, but uh, in order not to be intercepted, we sent a letter to Beijing and asked actually my mother to send a letter out uh, in the post office to Chairman Mao. I, uh, You know, when I first met my wife, I was telling her stories of the Gobi Desert and she couldn't help, she couldn't stop laughing. You know, whatever I told her, she was just laughing about it. I told her that we were so hungry that we would go out into villages to steal chicken. We will steal everything, we'll kill everything, we'll eat everything, chicken, dog, anything that we could see. And uh, Actually, I didn't do much of that, but many of my friends did.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> and uh, uh, to go to a, a village, you know, it would take uh, a, a few hours, because in the Mongolia, Gobi Desert, it was very, uh, very sparsely populated, and you would walk miles and miles, you wouldn't see a soul. And one time I thought that if I dropped that in the middle of this, nobody would discover me, probably forever so the peasants were so fed up with us but they didn't know what to do to protect their chicken <laughs> so they built the chicken coop with a long tunnel you know like a hallway so long that uh, you know, it's longer than your arm so you couldn't reach it at night
1: <laughs> and
2: so they invented this system that you would only see in that part of the country that the chicken who would have a long walk away from the chicken to go into the nest so people like us would not be able to uh, uh, To steal the chicken and, uh, But we ate everything
1: Did you see your parents at all during those six years?
2: Yes, three years later I was allowed to Go home once for about two weeks And uh, I was able to see my uh, parents. My family was broken up. There were five of us. My parents, I have sister, I have brother. My sister was sent to yet another remote part of China. My mother was sent to another remote part of China. And uh, my father and brother were allowed to stay in the city because one was old, considered, and the other was too young. And uh, so uh, in 1972, I left Beijing for the Gobi when, when uh, uh, it was 1969, September the 5th, 1969, that's the day I left. I came back to Beijing in 1972, in, spring, uh, in uh, February of uh, 1972, when Richard Nixon uh, came to visit and I spent a couple of weeks with my parents uh, in Beijing, and that was the only time.
1: So, once in six years. Tell us about the, you know, obviously the, you, you entered college during the Cultural Revolution. You were not part of the class of 77, you hmm. actually were before that. Um, tell us the process by which you kind of were able to enter college?
2: Well I can only tell you that I got into this college and at that time it was still informal education system. Schools were opened and universities were opened but uh, there was no degree system therefore I never got a bachelor's degree even though I spent three years studying English in Beijing. And uh, before the formal college system began in 1977, uh, for a few years, workers, peasants and soldiers were allowed to go to college, but on a very selective basis. You know In our company, we had about 300 people, and nine were selected to go to college. I can only tell you that I went to college not through the back door, right. not through the connections as a lot of people did. And the process that I went through is, was too elaborate for me to describe here. And this part, you really have to read the book. <laughs> and I wish there was the examination system it would have been much easier for me
1: Before opening the the floor to questions, let me just try to put it in the context of today. This experience, obviously, and it's really a gripping experience. And far too often, we lose sight of what happened. People our age have many millions, tens of millions, have gone through this experience. What does it mean for China today?
2: I think that most people in my generation certainly don't want to repeat the same experience. And I think that experience taught us about a lot of things. At that time, all the economic activities in China were controlled by the government, 100% (coughs) of it. There was nothing left out. Even in communes, it's called collective ownership. In fact, it was state controlled. And China was not getting anywhere and China was the economic disaster. China was in dire poverty and we could hardly feed ourselves. And what really transformed China since then, since the start of the opening, open door policy and the economic reforms 40 years ago, was to move away from centrally planned or command economy in the direction of the market. And in a way, we open the cage to let people out of the constraints of the old system. So I think that if you ask the question, how China got to where we're today, you know, 40 years ago, per capita income in China was probably about $150. And I was making, when I was in the Gobi, $10 you know for how long, $10 per per year, per year. we were given some food and some clothing, but for take home, there was no home, (laughs) take uh, into your pocket money was $10 a year. Today, China's per capita GDP is about $9,000, getting close to $10,000. And how did China get over here is really moving away from the centrally planned economy, the government control of economic activities in the direction of the market. And I think that's the biggest lesson that we have learned. And the people of my generation certainly don't want to repeat the experience of the Cultural Revolution. Do
1: you think current economic policy understands that? As we're seeing, you know, one of our vice chairs just wrote a book he wrote a, fo- a book before, which was called "Mark Markets Over Mao," and now he's written a book which is "The State Strikes Back." Oh, that's Basically, Lardy. Nick Lardy, who's yes. vice chairman of the committee, who right. has written a book which says that, you know, the lessons of these forty years seem to be abandoned. That the lessons of the Cultural Revolution, um, where the state dictated everything and therefore you didn't have economic growth, we now, you know, he obviously relies on a lot of data to say we've seen a shift back to, obviously not all the way back, but we're moving in the wrong direction.
2: There is a great concern about uh, the advance of the state owned sector and the weakening of the private sector in China. And uh, I think there's a concern even within the establishment, within the leadership. And uh, I think the future of China (coughs) lies in the market economy and more liberal market system. And uh, my view is that uh, the economic reforms with regard to state-owned sector has stalled in the past few years. But I think to really curtail the private sector and to downsize it is not possible. Because today, the private sector contributes to more than 60% of China's GDP, 60% of China's GDP, more than 80% of its urban employment, more than 80% of its industrial output, more than 90% of China's exports, half of which in fact is by companies owned by foreigners or foreign owned companies in China. And China is also moving away from an investment-led growth model into a model of growth driven more by private consumption. Moving away from export-driven economy to more domestic consumption-driven economy. Let me give you some statistics. More than 10 years ago, exports as percentage of GDP peaked at about 36%. That's a very big number, 30% of the GDP was exports. And private consumption was about 35% of GDP. This was about 10 years ago, a dozen years ago. Today, exports account for about 19% of GDP at the end of, the, of last year, you know, almost halved. And private consumption has become more than 50% of gdp so china clearly is moving away from the old model into a new model and when it comes to private consumption if it comes to a consumption led or driven economy you have to rely on the private sector like it or not so i think that the market has taken a life of its own and there's only one direction to go and that is continuation of marketization of the Chinese economy.
1: Like everything in China, it's not like this. Correct. It's like this, right. and right now we're in a this phase. <laughs> we are not moving in the direction of a market economy and the, the, the credit, uh, what Nick Lardy focuses on is kind of the, the credit allocation numbers that you've seen a reversal from 2012 to 2018 of credit provided to the private SME sector versus credit provided to the state-owned sector, and he finds that deeply damaging to all of the things that should happen in the Chinese economy.
2: I read his work. I have some different view in that particular regard. Because we, when I say we, I used to be managing Co-managing partner of Newbridge Capital. Later, we renamed ourselves as TPG Asia. So we were part of TPG, a private equity firm, and we were the only one to have controlled the nationwide bank in China. Among other things that we did, as you're familiar. So even when we controlled Shenzhen Development Bank, we would not lend to many of the private companies. In fact, we would prefer to lend to the state owned companies. Why? Because SOEs are better credit. And SMEs, small companies, are just not as good a credit. You know, in this country, you have small business administration in order to help small businesses to obtain credit. So it's very natural that it is difficult for a private sector to get credit. But the, the truth of the matter is, it's not really the credit that matters so much. You know, the private sector grew in spite of the fact that uh, credit was somewhat denied. And this is not only true for China, in Japan, in Korea, everywhere uh, is a similar situation. But the private sector still thrived and now is very viable part of the Chinese economy, actually the largest part of the Chinese economy. But I think the competition between the private sector and state-owned sector is unfair. Of course, you know, state-owned uh, companies have an unfair edge. And on the equal uh, footing, of course, uh, SOEs stand no chance. And they're so inefficient that uh, you know, when we bought this bank, Shenzhen Development Bank, back in 2005, We find the bank was very broken, and uh, its bad loan ratio in 2004 was 11.4 percent. Its capital ratio was 2.3 percent. That's nominal. The actual was negative, and uh, the actual bad loan ratio was double 11.4 percent. So it was broken insolvent bank. And uh, we fixed it, we tightened the risk control and five years later, we brought the capital ratio up to 10%, mostly through organic growth from earnings and we quadrupled the assets of the company, of the bank and we increased the profitability of the bank from $40 million to more than a billion dollars per year. We invested only about $150 million, we took out 2.4 billion dollars for that investment after uh, five years. Now, I tell you this not to brag about uh, the returns that we made for our investors, but to illustrate how inefficient a state-controlled bank was before it took over, and how much efficiency that you could unleash from a state-owned company once it becomes privately controlled. So I think when China moves away from investment export-led growth to consumption-driven growth, the growth rate necessarily will have to drop because investments have a multiplier effect that consumption doesn't have. In order <coughs> to sustain the economic growth, China will have to find other sources of efficiency. Where do you find sources of efficiency? In terms of productive efficiency, I would say that in the past 40 years, China has made a great progress. In terms of allocative efficiency, China is still very much lacking, and a lot of resources are allocated to the state-owned sector. So I think if you downsize the state-owned sector, you privatize the state-owned sector, you'll be able to unleash a lot of efficiencies which will help sustain China's economic growth.
1: Questions? Let me open to the, oh, Bill, you always get one here. All right, Bill, go ahead. (laughs) Fascinating talk. I'm Bill Armbruster. I'm a retired journalist. Uh, Whatever happened to the aviation um, expert you've been granted in the Gobi, and also have you stayed in touch with any of the other uh, young people uh, with whom you went to the Gobi?
2: Thank you, Bill. don't think that journalists will ever retire, because you're right. (laughs) Uh, Mr. Yi went back, he was brought back to his work unit, which was CAAC, China Aviation Service, right after I took the picture with him. And a a couple of years later, he retired to his hometown to his home at five Long Yin Road in Guilin. He left his address with me. I kept correspondence with him for a number of years. Eventually, we lost touch. By now, he must be more than 100 years old. And uh, I keep in close contact with uh, many of my Gobi friends. In fact, They remain my closest friends. So whenever I go back to Beijing, we would get together for a meal. We still enjoy a meal to fill our stomach.
1: Any of them have your success?
2: As I mentioned, almost all of them still live in poverty. Because after 10 years of no schooling, you know, in today's society, it's very so difficult for them to find a job. Mm. And uh, that's why our generation is so lost. And their hope is always in their children. Yeah.
1: Savio. Yeah.
0: Thank you. Uh, Savio Tong, I'm delighted to be here. And I can say that I'm a friend of Shan. Uh He is, and I can confirm that, one of the most successful investors, I think, globally, not just in China. Uh, my question is a little different. Um, you just mentioned about your friends in poverty and that they didn't have education for 10 years. I went to this university called Columbia from 69 to 73. I didn't go to half of the classes also. And some of my friends did worse than that. And when we graduated, I think about half of them did not have jobs, uh, unlike today and um, I kept in touch with some of them. I found many of them are kind of, in my house, I call them the lost generation. For four years or about, because of Vietnam, because of SDS, the young people don't know SDS, uh, they were lost, They they lost the mission, they lost their ambition, and today, I found many of them are still very bitter about what happened uh, I don't think they blame themselves too much I think they blame the war they blame the universities they blame many things but I want to see if there's a parallel to what you are talking about uh, the the Gobi gang or other the red guards are they still resenting what happened or are they just in despair. Uh, and then the other question I have is, it's a little Just myself speculating.
1: We've got a lot of folks who want to okay. ask questions. So that's my, right. that's my question. So I've got about five more hands, six more, go ahead.
2: I don't have this sense that uh, my friends are bitter about anything. And uh, we have long learned, even when we were in the Gobi, to be resigned to the fate that we were in. And I think that in that kind of hardship, to give up and not push yourself to study, to read, with a lot of risks that you took by reading, was easy way out. And many people just took the easy way out. I didn't, partly because I was trying to find interesting things in books. I find it a source (coughs) of, uh, you know, I I was just very curious to learn things. And I also thought that in life, many people may be very talented, uh, would not get anywhere because they somehow did not encounter good opportunities. And uh, my thinking is that uh, if an opportunity eventually comes my way, and if I can't capture it, it's my fault. And if I never get an opportunity, then that's God's will. (laughs) That has nothing to do with me. You know, uh, I'm pretty resigned to that. And uh, so I didn't give up. I kept preparing. I was reading. And therefore, when the opportunity eventually came, I was prepared. For most of my friends, they were not. And they made a decision to take the easy way out. And uh, that's why I don't think anybody delves so much into the past. And they pin their hope on their children. And you should see how Chinese parents drive
1: their oh, children to study A lot of hands R- Right here, the, on the aisle And then TK after that
2: Great, right, thank you, Steve So Dr. San or Dr. Don So Shan, Shan is your name, okay, the name. Okay. Thank you I put okay, your business card and say Don So The Chinese that, that character is pronounced three ways Oh, I need to look uh, closer, sorry I need to look <laughs> closer Anyway, I'm um, go back to the question So
1: after, based on your bio, after your COVID desert day In particular, when you're in the States, you went on to earn multiple degrees, including a doctorate. You went on to academics, and you achieved great success in the financial world. But I'm more interested in your Gobi Desert days. When you look back in that period, very harsh life, harsh experience, but when you look back that six years, what do you think you have learned that have prepared you to achieve great success subsequently?
2: I was talking with Steve about this exact same question, and uh, I I would say (laughs) two things I learned from that experience. One is nothing is tougher, Mm -hmm. and and therefore everything looks not so difficult. And the second thing I learned is to be very patient. And I think that uh, in life and in work, a lot of patience is, is very important, and I think opportunity that I have today is a privilege every day is a privilege and therefore I treasure it I appreciate it and I take full advantage of it that's what I have learned because so many of my friends were not given such opportunities.
1: TK over there. Um, Jack
2: Welch the former CEO of General Electric says that he would you know, if you're not number one or number two in the industry, he gets out of that industry. And so, I think the best justification for building SOE national champions is that in many industries, all the profits belong to the top two. You know, Apple, Samsung, Boeing, Airbus. You know, Siemens and uh, Alstom are going to merge. I mean, I think there's some. You know, there's something to the Chinese
0: direction
2: to building national champions. I wonder what you think of that. I think to my experience in the Gobi and outside of the Gobi and in the past 40, 40 years and not only in China, in other countries as well, tell me that if you count on the government to build national champions, to build multinational global firms, I think you're making the wrong bet.
1: Agreed.
0: First, I would like to congratulate you on your book being so tremendously successful. (coughs) There's only one Barnes and Nobles in the entirety of Manhattan that still has it in stock. (laughs) I know this because I missed the memo about the books being available here, so I had to go to that one specific place to buy it. Oh. You should have called me. and we my have him in the back.
2: <laughs>
0: my question is, when you were writing this book, I feel like you must have had a message or a target audience mind for this, whether it be just purely for carth- carthodic reasons or did you want a specific group of people to read this book and come to an understanding?
2: I, I think that part of the history should be remembered. And you know, my book is a recount of the most horrific part of the Chinese history. And I do truly believe that if you don't understand the history of a country, you don't understand the country. Just as if you don't understand, if you don't know about Vietnam War, about uh, civil rights movement, uh, about Watergate, you don't understand America. So I think that uh, it is important to record that part of the history My story or my stories in my book are unique as they are my personal experiences. But at the same time, they're also very representative of the experiences of my entire generation. I wouldn't have written it just for my own purpose. And I write it on behalf of people of my generation. And I think it should be remembered. And I started writing this book when my kids were very small and I you know instead of telling them about fairy tales I was telling them about uh, (laughs) stories of uh, your father in his childhood Uh, for some reason they uh, were fascinated with it Uh, the reason that I did so was because I wanted them to appreciate what they have today and uh, I stopped writing you know I started writing when I became a professor, professor at the Wharton School, where I taught for six years, which I described in my book. But work got too busy, and uh, you know, I was spending a lot of time with my children. So I stopped for 27 years. Now they're grown, and now I thought uh, I couldn't delay this any longer, decided to finish the book as part of my New Year resolution in 2017. <laughs> That's how I decided to write, but I also, I also thought that uh, uh, the, the book is very relevant to, uh, you know, uh, to, to China today, or well, anybody who is interested in China today.
1: We're glad you made that New Year's resolution, and you we're glad that you contributed this book to our, our, uh, our knowledge of China, but we are out of time. So the only thing I can say is the book is available back there. And, um, and it's Sean is... not available else in New York. That's right. So it's not anywhere else in New York. So if you want it, you better buy it right here. But, Sean, thank you so much for a wonderful, wonderful talk. Thank you so very much. Thank you.